Ladies and gentlemen, it is that time yet again. We are broadcasting almost live from deep beneath an old B. Dalton books. It's Tavern Voices. It is the first and only podcast dedicated to unfiltered North Carolina news. I'm your host, Kevin King, and with me, as always, is our other host and the area-renowned terrestrial radio host, Tyler Crawley. How's it going? I like that. I like that. I like that. Pretty soon you're going to be able to say uh, underground a uh, old JC Penney's because they're on the way out. <laughs> they are headed, so. They're headed that way. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to be able to say that. So you should prepare. Prepare accordingly and get ready to work that in seamlessly to your next intro. I'll work on it. I'll, I'll go ahead and put that in queue. <laughs> All right. So speaking of things that are well out with the old and with the new, um, I guess we'll start with the crazy ninth congressional district, which we have talked about here on this program many a times. And uh, we'll start with the ninth because the third is much more interesting to talk about only because there's so many more people running for this race. So in the ninth congressional district, uh, obviously this is all, this is the, the Mark Harris, Dan McCready race. No one's challenging Dan McCready. He is the guy he's got this, you know, he's, he's the one to beat. He is the uh, Democrats nominee. He's getting national attention, national money, uh, national endorsements from, I think everyone running in 2020 on the, uh, for president on the Democrat side. So the question is who is going to be on the Republican side? And it doesn't seem like a lot of people want the job. In fact, over the last two weeks, more people have announced they're not running than have announced that they're running. And some high-profile people, for example, Mark Harris famously, the one caught up in all of this, the one who won and then he didn't win, uh, he announced he's not going to be running. Pat McCrory announced that he's not going to be running. We had, I think, two or three or four more people over the weekend say they're not running. The only person that said that they are running is a guy named Stony Rushing, who... The Washington Post did a profile on, and apparently he likes to dress up like Boss Hog for Halloween, and he actually puts it in his campaign material. He apparently wants that seat. And then apparently Tommy Tucker, uh, who I guess is the establishment candidate, who used to be a senator, and then uh, I guess announced he wasn't going to run to spend more time with his kids or grandkids, I guess it is. So that's the only two names that are out there right now. And actually, you know what? I take that back. Uh, someone that Kevin and I, we know, from UNCW uh, just announced that she's running for the seat. Uh, Stevie Rivenbark, who I took a couple of political science classes with at UNCW. And I guess, Kevin, you probably had a couple of classes with her too. Uh, she's running. So we have three candidates running in the ninth congressional district. And Kevin, my question for you, very simple. Do, does any Republican have a shot in the ninth congressional district? Hmm. That's that's a good. Well, first of all, you've got to look at this as a very, very odd election time. Right. So it's yeah, it's going to be about get out the vote. So I think it could really go either way, regardless of how it went uh, last fall. Right. Because you've got a whole new set of circumstances. You've got a completely different wave of people coming out to vote for that. You're not going to get the anti GOP vote out, I would assume, as much as they did last fall, where you saw. So many state, uh, um, so many offices across the state where the Republicans took a beating at the General Assembly. Um, so I, I mean, I think it could toss up. I think a Republican could win. Now, if it is Boss Hog, probably not. <laughs> well, what's really probably not? Yeah, I mean, I, I think really the way I'm looking at this race is basically the Republicans need, need to not just look at this race, but then look at the general 
uh, uh, the next election in 2020, because basically Dan McCready wins. He's right back in campaign mode because uh, they announced today the dates for the special election. Uh, I think March uh, 14th is when they're going to open up uh, or March 11th, excuse me, is when they're going to open up for candidates to file. The primary is May 14th and then the general is set for September 10th. So basically he's going to win whoever wins in September and then basically they're going to be running for next November. So, I mean, it's, it's really it's really more about getting yourself ready for the next general election. And so the Republicans need to be sure that they pick someone who does a good enough job because that person is going to have far more money and far more attention right now. They're severe disadvantage, but come the general election 2020, they're going to be in a far better position because they'll be able to raise more money and you won't have the taints of the whole Mark Harris situation around them. So I really look at it as, as this is sort of like a practice for 2020. So it's about finding someone that's not going to embarrass us, that's going to be able to have people go, okay, we trust the Republicans in the ninth district again and kind of get ready. If we win, that's great. But it's more about just not getting destroyed, I think is the key uh, for Republicans. I mean, I, I think you're right. And I did want to mention um, David Blackwelder has announced. Oh, he's I announced forgot too. about that. Um, that because he started following me on on Instagram. So that was well, that was something. If, hey, if you lock down the Kevin King endorsement, it's game over <laughs> in the ninth. That so. dollar will get you a cup of coffee. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so you've got that. But uh, so let me ask you this question though: Is if these other people, I've heard other names floated around. I've seen some stuff on Facebook. There could be another, you know, two or three people in this race. If you get down and you have, let's say, six, seven, eight Republicans in this primary in May, what do you think that the ultimate outcome of that is going to be? When they're going to have to spend basically anything that they raise to fight each other and get through something where the vote can be so split. Well, I guess because I mean, well, well, and imagine if no one gets a a you know yeah. what's the threshold, North Carolina forty one percent. Yeah, well, then you get into, yeah, then, then you have a runoff, and then that means the general would be the fifth of November. So, yeah, I mean, I think a runoff is possible. Because once again, filing hasn't even started. Filing's already started in the third. That's why you're seeing so many more people come forward. So yeah, we'll see what happens now that the date has been set. We'll see more people get into the race. But yeah, I mean, they're, I mean, first of all, they're talking about a major, major media market. So you're going to need some major dollars. And I just don't see a lot of Republican donors opening up and writing checks for a race like that. Uh, unless there's like an amazing candidate. Unless someone just is just, you know, the, the next... I don't even know who you the next Ronald Reagan. I, I just don't see uh, the GOP putting too much uh, money into this race, especially because it doesn't even matter because there's so I mean, Dan McCree has been raising money for like two months now and he's got a huge war chest. And so it's 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 there's not a lot they can do. It's more about getting a good place setter placeholder, I should say, for 2020. Well, and what what also does it play into it when we're looking at this field of candidates and trying to find, I mean, obviously in a primary, you end up with the person who appeals to the most, uh, to the largest amount of the base, right? And that doesn't have any sort of translation to general electability. And when you're looking at a race where Dan McCready did so well, he's already got a some sort of likability in that district to compete how he did against Mark Harris, who has ran in, in various forms over the last several years in that area. So he already had more name recognition and structure mm-hmm. as far as campaigns go. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to see which one of these candidates would be the best to run against him funding aside, but just general likability. Well, that's why I think, you know, 
this guy, Stony Rushing, has already kind of come off as a little bit uh, eccentric. And that's a nice uh, way to put it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are going to look at him and say, uh oh, here we go again. Cause I mean, let's not forget Mark Harris knocked out the incumbent. And so he was the, you know, anti establishment candidate. And people might go, you know what? We tried that. It didn't work out. So why don't we just go with a safe candidate? And some would say, well, Tommy Tucker fits that mold. And I think that, I, I think that the anti establishment. I mean, I can tell you a really good example here in New Hanover County a little while ago or a couple of years ago, I guess now uh, we had a guy get elected in county commission who it turned out was eh, maybe not all there, sort of stability wise, mentally stable. And he was like the Tea Party anti-establishment darling. And then when his time in office became such an embarrassment, it actually hurt the movement. I mean, like the movement was diminished because he was their candidate. It was like, wow, that was embarrassing. I mean, really embarrassing. And so Mark Harris has embarrassed a lot of these grassroots people that might have backed him over Pittenger. And so they're going to have a real hard time convincing people to go, no, no, but this candidate's better. So they're, they're, they're going to face some obstacles. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think it's going to be interesting how that plays out and who ultimately makes it through that rat race of a primary and and who can get into office and see whether or not they can get something done. Because, um, you know, here at the state level, we have a pretty interesting dynamic in the Senate Republicans, the House Republicans, and then also uh, Del Falwell, who is a Council of States Republican. And in an effort to continue his financial reforms, State Treasurer Del Falwell has proposed his most controversial plan yet. By going after the way the state health plan operates, Falwell estimates it would save taxpayers a total of $300 million per year. The plan is to establish a flat reimbursement rate of 177% of that that the Medicare reimbursement rate is. Hospitals are fighting back against this, though, and their lobbyists are backing some new bipartisan legislation that could slow down, if not completely block, the Treasurer's plan. Tyler, why are fiscally conservative Republicans fighting against a fiscally conservative Republican? Campaign donations. <laughs> <laughs> Follow the money. Uh, yeah, I mean, this one, this is interesting because there's so many elements at play here because, I mean, let's face it. I, I you know, I look at our, our current system that's been set up and it's, it's, we're really in this sort of bad place thanks to Obamacare, which encouraged small practices to merge with hospitals in order to make more money because hospitals have a higher reimbursement rate. And so it just made more sense. And so what's happened is these hospitals have become these giant healthcare machines. And so a lot of these doctors now work for these places. And I'm someone that believes that the doctors should probably get paid definitely what they're getting paid now, if not more, only because I want to make going into medicine a very uh, lucrative job because I want, I don't want the smartest people I know going on wall street and starting hedge funds. I want them going into medicine so they can save people. And so we can all live longer. I mean, this is a huge problem where more and more doctors, I mean, I had two friends growing up, both of their parents were doctors. Neither of them went into medicine. 
I mean, like, that's crazy. Like, I mean, so you basically have, you know, two doctors and then none of, none of their children went into medicine. And it's because a lot of doctors are telling their kids don't go into medicine because of all the problems, you know, whether it's lawsuits, whether it's you're just not getting as much, whether the cost of education of getting uh, your doctorate. And so all of these things. So I'm really kind of stuck where I'm like, yes, I want transparency, which Falwell is trying to do. I do think we need to worry about cost because the state is paying for it. And if we can save money, you know, I'm a taxpayer. We need to do that. We can't have these unfunded liabilities getting more and more out of control. But at the same time, I also understand the point that doctors are making that, listen, we need to be getting paid, you know, top, top dollar. And so in all honesty, I don't know enough about, you know, the reimbursement rate. Uh, I think it's like 177% of uh, Medicaid, how, how good or bad that is uh, in the grand scheme of things. So it's really hard for me to say, but I, I, I can see an argument being made for fiscal conservatives to say, hey, listen, we do want doctors to get paid top dollar. So that way state employees can see these good doctors and they're not because that's the problem with Medicaid, right? It, they reimburse at such a low rate nobody takes Medicaid. And so it, there's so many moving parts on this that um, it, it gets so complicated, but I do like what Falwell is doing, but I do think you can make a somewhat conservative argument on the other side, whether they're doing it for altruistic reasons or they're doing it, like I said, for campaign donations from hospitals because they are rolling in the dough is yet to be determined, but it, it it's, it's crazy complicated. And if you're not in medicine, which I'm not, it's really hard for me to go. Well, that's fair. And that's not fair. Yeah. Well, let me, let me, I'll, there are a couple points I want to make on this and I'll try to do it in a brief amount of time so that we can keep things, keep <laughs> things on the, on the, on the, uh, on the train tracks here. But I, I think you have some points there, Tyler. I think the, the more underlying issue with this and what this is going after is the problem that Obamacare and the left never addresses, and that is the cost of health care. They want everyone to have insurance. They want universal health care. They want all of these things, but they're not looking at saying, what, why is health care so expensive? And, and why has Obamacare driven cost up so much? And a little bit of backstory to this, for those who don't know, is that the treasurer has been trying to find out what they're even paying Right. Because right now they are a self-funded plan, which means Blue Cross Blue Shield only implements uh, their, their payments for them. They're, they're, they're basically a kind of a broker instead of it's not actual health insurance in a traditional sense. So every month or quarter, however it works, the Blue Cross Blue Shield basically says, here's a bill for all of the um, you know procedures, operations, doctor visits, et cetera, that all of your 700 plus thousand members. I mean, they insure almost three quarters of a million people through the state health plan. You know, here's the amount, write us a check for however many millions, billions, whatever it may be. And they've been trying to look into that and say, okay, but what are we paying for? Because here's a big problem when you're talking about healthcare costs. And that is the wide range of fees that someone charges, right? Because let's say an MRI is $500 at one place it's a thousand or fifteen hundred another, or it's ten thousand dollars, and this can all be within miles of each other. And there are several different efforts through technology and and uh, different resources where they're trying to break through that. But if let's say your preferred doctor's office charges ten thousand dollars for the same MRI or X-ray or something where it might be a thousand dollars at a competitor down the road. No one knows that cost difference, so it, it bleeds out of the system unnecessarily when you can get the exact same type of very simple uh, you know, procedure or imaging or something done. 
at a different place. And, and when you start to multiply that over three quarters of a million people, that's where you get to these numbers. I think they said just in the um, just in out-of-pocket costs for consumers, it would be $60 million a year. So it would be such a huge advantage to start getting transparency. And I think the reason it has gotten to this point is that the treasurer's office tried to get Blue Cross Blue Shield to unveil what they're paying. Yeah for the doctor's offices. And they came back and said, no, that is proprietary confidential information. So they then did a FOIA request to the UNC hospital system, which is an entity of the state. And they got back dozens of pages of redacted documents. So it's kind of like, you know, there's a whole what's going on behind the curtain. Oz doesn't want you to know in healthcare. And they're trying to directly go after that. So I I give a lot of merit to it while at the same time, I understand you know, your, your side of it. And like any argument, there's, there's two sides to the coin, Yeah, I'm right. And you're wrong. <laughs> but yeah, no, the transparency part, I think is very key. Um, and the fact that they don't want to reveal this information, I think is also very telling, but like I said, it's what's happened to medicine. You know, we have the moving wheels of the federal government that's created this mess, um, and dis, dis, uh, incentivized, uh, smaller practices to say, to stay smaller and not to mention litigious law, you know, the, uh, frivolous lawsuits that we've seen over the years. And yeah, I mean, it, it does worry me. And another reason why we need, you know, more immigration, especially, uh, uh, high skilled immigration, because we are, we're importing a lot of doctors because native born people are not going to medical school at the rate that they should. So that's a big issue as well, but transparency, as a conservative, I will always, always support transparency. And speaking of transparency, we are getting every single day, it seems like more and more people are running and announcing and filing that they are running in the third congressional district. So we talked about the ninth, which uh, has a little bit more of, I guess, uh, controversy around it. The third, of course, this seat was uh, vacated when uh, Congressman Walter Jones passed away at the beginning of February. And so this is a Republican district. And there are some Democrats that are running, but it really is a Republican's race to lose. And there are a lot of names so far in this one. Um, Who's the front runner? Depends on who you ask. Uh, But some of the people that are running, we got Greg Murphy, Phil Law, Francis DeLuca, Michael Speciali, and Michelle Nix, who today resigned from her position as the vice chair of the North Carolina GOP. And in this one, I really don't know. There was a straw poll, I think, recently done in one of the counties in the ninth uh, or the third, excuse me, and Michael Speciali uh, won. And so some are saying he could be the front runner. I think he has some of the some of the problems that we talked about earlier. He's been behind some more kind of out there bills and legislation, uh, you know, being in the general assembly. And so that could run into a problem, but to be honest, it's going to, I think it'd be very difficult to say who the front runner is. And I think you're more than likely this versus the ninth district going to see more of, uh, the possibility of a runoff. And, uh, Kevin, I guess my question for you would be, who do you think the front runner could be in the third congressional district? Well, I wish I knew more about that district. Um, I knew very little about it, even when um, when the late Walter Jones was the congressman from there. I know he was there many, many terms, um, and I know it's kind of an agricultural, well, him I and guess, dad, mostly area. Him and his dad uh, held that district for about 60 years. So his dad had it, and then someone else had it for like one year, and then Walter Jones won it. And so for 60 years, Walter Jones – a Walter Jones has had that seat. So this will be the first time that it's, it's really kind of an open race. 
If there's anyone in the third district that has the last name Jones, they should throw their hat in the ring. That's really going to be a leg up. (laughs) (laughs) Or just go by. Just go by. That's true. Um, Yeah. You know, what I think is going to be interesting is out of that group of people that you listed, I can already start to form some ideas of how things are going to go. But I'll tell you one thing that's going to be interesting is that if it is either Greg Murphy or Michael Speciali, that's going to be an interesting loss for the North Carolina House. And I say that for two very different reasons. I think Speciali has had a very uh, a great place in the House as being sort of the conservative, conservatarian, smaller government voice against a lot of the budget increases and different policies. Um, he was outspoken against the voter ID bill that it didn't do enough. Um, those sorts of things. So he's had a very interesting place in being sort of that, you know, Rand Paul of the Senate voice in the North Carolina House, right? Just kind of that more principled, uh, a little bit of a thorn in the side of the of the leadership because he wouldn't really go along with certain things and, and things like that. So I think that would be an interesting kind of loss. And then you have Greg Murphy, who is, I'm pretty sure, basically the only physician yeah. in the North Carolina House. And so he is the go-to expert, I kid you not, um, for medical policies when they're talking about Medicaid expansion, when they're talking about just this healthcare bill, I'm sure he's very heavily involved in this. And to have him no longer being in the North Carolina House would be a blow to any sort of medical legislation uh, on the Republican side, frankly. Um, so while I don't know who's going to be the front runner, I think either one of those people taking that seat I think would be a great asset for the state of North Carolina, but would in turn be a loss for the uh, for the house. What's interesting is that Greg Murphy is also kind of caught up in the story we were just talking about with Dale Falwell, where exactly. he's a big uh, hospital supporter. And I think he had the he actually led the hearing recently uh, looking into all of this, this hospital drama. So, um, you know, I guess you could argue Greg Murphy's a little bit more establishment uh, to some extent and Michael Speciali a little bit more sort of anti establishment candidate. Um, but so that you're right, that would be very interesting. And then, you know, Michelle Nix, you know, was, was a tea partier, but some people have said she's gotten a little too cozy with, uh, you know, Dallas and Hayes and hasn't, I guess, protested more of the things that the you know GOPE is doing. So it's, yeah, yeah. I, I, is she, is she not pure enough anymore? Yeah, no. I mean, I'll tell you, it, nowadays, I don't know what is and what is not. I mean, it's it's some of the weirdest things are, are um, uh, what do you call them, purity tests. And it's like, that's a purity test? Like, that doesn't seem like that would be a purity test. Uh, so it just depends on which way the wind is blowing. But I think the third is going to be the far more interesting race to watch just because it is a Republican seat. But here's something real quick here, real quick. The one thing I have not heard mentioned in either race, Donald Trump. You know, usually when you have special elections, it's always like, this is a referendum on Donald Trump. This is, you know, we saw that in Georgia. We saw that in, uh, I guess, what was one of the other couple of the other races out there? All the special elections they had in New York, there was one. I have not heard that mentioned once. And it's like the ninth because of all the craziness and the third because maybe it is so Republican. But I have not heard anyone getting ready and saying that this is going to, you know, Democrats don't really seem to be, you know, because Dan McCready is a, you know, she's already, he's bucked the party. I think back during the election, he said he wasn't going to vote for Nancy Pelosi for speaker. And so it's not really a referendum on, on Trump. And then the third, I think is kind of so Republican 
uh, and Walter Jones was kind of a supporter of Trump, but then not really. And so it's just weird. I haven't heard Donald Trump's name mentioned at all for these special elections. Well, I mean, you've seen his numbers have just kind of, I mean, they're not really changing a lot. Mm. He's still very popular with the GOP as a whole, very, very popular with the base and everybody who hates him, hates him and everybody who loves him, loves him. And that's not really changing a lot. So I don't see really which way that that would go. I don't know if that would hurt Republicans or help them or vice versa, but. Well, I mean, because you you have to wonder if candidates of one of the ways they're going to make some noise in the primary would be, I'm, I'm a hundred percent behind Trump's agenda, or I'm going to be a challenger to Trump. Cause Walter Jones was, Walter Jones was not happy about the spending bills. He was not happy about, uh, you know, the increase in, in, uh, uh, in some of the, the, the spending, he wasn't happy with some of the overreaches. And so you got to wonder how that's going to play. But I just, it's just interesting to me that nobody has mentioned Trump's name, which is usually the first thing that gets mentioned in a special election. Yeah. Maybe they just feel like this isn't a normal special election. It's not a runoff. It's not a vacant seat. There was no scandal around it. I mean, you have a death. And then, like you said, the the ninth district is a scandal in and of itself. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe no one is paying attention to North Carolina politics (laughs) like we do. (laughs) That could also be the problem. But that's why we're here. That's why we're here. And, you know, Tyler, we've really got to work on our disconjointed nature because – you talked about an election, and then I talked about something totally different. Then you went back to an election. <laughs> and now I'm moving on to, once again, a totally different subject. But it does have to do with finances. So my two subjects and your two were very similar. So let's switch gears again back to finances. And we have said, if we've said it once, we've probably said it a million times on this show, that there should be financial literacy courses, and they should probably be mandatory for all high school students. Well, that could actually become a reality. Right now, there is a bipartisan bill that is supported by Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest that has been introduced in the North Carolina Senate. The required class would include lessons on how to afford college, getting a mortgage, and how to cre- how to navigate credit and debt. Now, Tyler, we all know that there's a long road between introducing a bill and it actually becoming policy. But the Senate actually has been known to get things done. So what are your thoughts on whether or not this will become a reality? I like it. I like it a lot. Now, some of the criticism I've seen, because I posted this on uh, my Facebook page for my radio station, and a lot of the comments were, oh, who's going to teach the class, like teachers that have crazy uh, student loan debt and and I said, well, you know what? That might actually be a good thing because they might be able to speak from experience. Don't borrow $200,000 uh, for a degree <laughs> that's going to pay you $30,000 or something along those lines. Do as I say, not yeah. as I do. Um, and everyone was criticizing um, them for not being fiscally responsible, some teachers. And I thought, you know, I mean, is this the standard we're, we're going to hold? We hold teachers to on every subject. Just the fact that they're teaching the class and just teaching some basics, I think, is good. And I hope it's a little bit of finance. I hope it's, you know, they teach people to balance checkbooks and understanding credit scores and credit ratings and the cost of borrowing interest. But I also hope they teach basic economics, like, uh, you know, just a little bit of why prices go up, why prices go down, because there does seem to be a lot of economic illiteracy and financial illiteracy in this country. And I think we'd be much better off if we taught that versus some other basic classes. And so, yeah, I'm all, I am a hundred percent supportive of this. And I think that they said the teachers would have to take some classes and then they would get a stipend. So let's incentivize them. 
to take these classes. Let's hope we can get some, you know, people that are smart with finance also to get involved. I mean, it would be great if there's a, how many like talk show hosts, finance guys are there if they were to do something and, and find a way to, to make a deal with school districts and provide a, a seriously uh, reduced plan, like a basic plan for high schools is something that could happen. And so I, I 100% support it. A um, little bit of finance, a little bit of economics, and I think our society will be a lot better off. Oh, I would, it would be great if they learned economics in their mandatory econ class. Yeah. That I think every freshman in the state takes, but you know that's that's asking a lot. It's funny though that you did mention the plan and these financial hosts and everything because I wanted to mention this um, sort of in full disclosure is that I am actually involved with the Dave Ramsey Education Program, and so what they do, Tyler, is they have a uh, basically curriculum for high school and middle school, two different curriculum, and they have local sponsors that pay a sponsorship amount to get that curriculum into a school in their area. And so I looked into this last year and what's cool is that it's the, um, the big credit union up here, coastal credit union. They have actually sponsored all of Wake County high schools. So when I did a sponsorship, I had to go to a middle school, which is totally cool as well, but they have, they, they find a teacher who's willing to teach the course and they have it to replace something else going on or they um, have them do it as, as just a, a small portion of um, an existing class. You know, they might take time every week to do 30 minute lesson on this or that. And it's really cool. They've seen all kinds of growth in the states and school districts where they've done this. Um, I believe it was Kentucky just passed a law uh, to basically put this kind of curriculum statewide Um in, in as a mandatory class for, for people to graduate a certain amount of credit hours for it. And what they've seen it, and this is something that I love about it is that financial literacy fixes so many other problems that we have socially in this country, right? Because you don't have people living outside of their means. You have them being responsible. So that, that, that amount of responsibility then helps offset the fact that they're not going to then be reliant on government programs. They're not going to need to dip into these other rainy day type things, even if they, um, you know, do hit a rough patch. And then, you know, from that, you also, I think, get a better understanding of economics when you're participating, but then you are able to then open businesses and do different things when you're not living in debt. You're, you're, I think the whole community changes when you've got more financial responsibility. So that's the cool thing I think about it. So I would love to see the state of North Carolina adopt something like this. And that's also why people say the difference between, you know, our generation versus our parents' generation and previous generations is, I mean, the one huge difference is the amount of debt that most kids are carrying. Yeah. I mean, credit cards to some extent, but for the most part, it's the student loans, Um, just a ridiculous amount of debt. And yeah, it does lead to kids in their twenties who back in the day, you know, you'd usually back, you know, you know, back in the day you get out of college, maybe had a little bit, but nothing too much. And it sort of would allow you to take jobs that maybe paid less, but you get more, uh, uh, which the or on job on, on site training, you, you get more experience doing that job. And then it would lead to a better career. Kids are now being forced to take jobs that pay more because they got to start paying off this debt. And so, yeah, it does influence the uh, decision-making process. But I do want to leave you with this. My favorite quote from Oscar Wilde, anyone who lives within their means suffers from a lack of imagination. So. 
That sounds like your motto. <laughs> I feel like you've lived by that. Exactly. Are you? And also, I also, this is this is the argument I make to everyone um, to go against everything we were just talking about. Borrow as much money as you want because uh, as this modern monetary theory gets more and more popular, and eventually it leads to hyperinflation and the destruction of the global economy, your debt will essentially be meaningless. So just borrow as much as you want. Twenty years, we're not going to worry about it anyway. Because if you save. Let's say you save $100,000, hyperinflation kicks in, $100,000 turns about $5. And meanwhile, my $100,000 in debt turns into $5. Who is the smarter person? Who had a lot more fun over 20 years? So just just saying, I'm playing the long game on this one. <laughs> I'm playing the uh, global economic collapse uh, uh, long game here. So we'll see who's right. I think you need to put this <laughs> clip on whatever dating profile you have and just warn any prospective dates of what they would inherit when you when you die that's true that is very true that's yeah zero sorry that that was very morbid when you die early (laughs) if you die early sorry that was very presumptive of me i agree and i was like yeah i'm definitely going out early (laughs) i live hard life man (laughs) i gotta do something to spend that hundred thousand (laughs) dollars